Hi, y'all. We are back for another episode. Really excited about this one today because we are going to dive into the world of psychiatry. So I think for many listeners, psychology and psychiatry can be very easily mixed. So for context, I'm a psychologist and I have Dr. Ariel Rubin on the podcast today. She is a double board certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. She specializes in autism, just like I do. And so we're going to talk a lot about that medication piece, because I know this is something that frequently comes up, especially for autistic individuals when there are those co-occurring disorders. So we're going to dive into all of that. I have some awesome questions lined up, things that I commonly see in my practice. I hear from families and we're going to do a deep dive today. As always, anything we do share on this podcast is not medical advice. And I think this is pertinent to highlight today a little bit more than I typically do because We're going to talk about medication, but this isn't saying that's the right medication for your child or that you need to go and like demand this medication. But the goal is to give you some education so that you can have these conversations with your child's provider. Welcome to a parenting space actually designed for you, where you can get answers about navigating a life that includes autism. I'm Dr. Tay, a licensed child psychologist and parental coach specializing in neurodivergent affirming care. I have supported hundreds of autistic children and their families and have been in the autism field for over a decade. And I know firsthand the impact autism can have. I was 12 years old when my little brother was diagnosed and my family had to learn how to navigate the autism journey. It wasn't always easy. Two decades later, I now create resources and services I wish my family had, including this podcast. And I developed the whole family approach. On this podcast, of course, we will talk about autism, but we will also talk about your personal growth and well being as a parent, supporting your non autistic children, and sharing personal stories of other families so you know you're not alone. Quick disclaimer before we jump into today's episode. Anything shared on this podcast should not be considered clinical advice, and you should consult with your team of medical, mental health, and developmental providers if you need support. Ariel, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. And this is completely untapped on the podcast. Like We have not really talked about medication and the field of psychiatry. Nope. I know none of the questions. So yeah. yeah, let's start out. I gave you a short intro, which you got to hear, but tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into this work and what you do now. Sure. So like you mentioned, a child, adolescent and adult psychiatrist. I've been out of training fully for a couple of years now. And then I finished my child training, which was an extra step of education last year. I do a mix of seeing kids, teens, and some young adults on the spectrum with co-occurring mental health issues, so depression, anxiety, ADHD, all the things, basically. I got into the work of autism first, I would say, before I got into the work of medicine. That started with my own family background, with my brother Andy, who I have to mention is my legacy and inspiration for everything. So I started out being really interested just in the autism community and autism space, started out actually as an ABA therapist, working with him and learning from him, doing that for a couple of years, and then went into college and really liked neuroscience and brain stuff and chemistry classes. So I decided I wanted to go to medical school. And then throughout that journey, I found a merging of mind and science and psychiatry with that autism piece of it that I really liked. So then that became my path of being a doctor, a psychiatrist focusing on autism and autism-related mental health issues because that kind of became the community that I was a part of with my brother. And so that journey to get all that training took about 10 plus years, but we are done now. So it was well worth it. And then now is mainly what I do is I see one-on-one clients and work with their families. And we really just try to see the whole piece of things. And sometimes that's making a new autism diagnosis that was missed when it's been seen as depression, anxiety, PTSD, other things. Yeah. And sometimes it's, yeah. And then sometimes it's happy things. So it's really fun. Sometimes people are like, oh, you work with so many patients with autism. Do you ever get bored? No, because everything is so different. So I love it. I wouldn't change it. And yeah, I'm very blessed to actually like really what I do and be excited to work every day. Yeah. I can tell that for sure. And 
I, I know I maybe have hinted at this, but Ariel and I have connected through Instagram and we really haven't had a lot of conversations. This is our first face-to-face conversation, but it's really funny. Our stories are so incredibly similar Yeah, that I have a brother. He was diagnosed at 23 months of age. And then I also majored in neuroscience in undergrad, was planning to go to med school and then took another route and ended uh-huh, up uh-huh. doing PhD. But it's also cool. We're coming at it from different standpoints. Very cool. We both ended up in private practice, serving the community that we learned about from an early age. Yeah, we grew up in. Yeah, exactly. So that's so awesome. Okay, where do we start? Let's talk first on this diagnosis piece. How often are you seeing yet? And largely we'll talk about kids and teens, since I know that's the large majority of your caseload. I'd say that's the large majority of parents also listening as well. How often are you seeing people not present with an autism diagnosis versus already having that diagnosis? Very frequently. Okay. Very frequently. Yeah. It's pretty common when they're oftentimes patients come to me as their third or fourth psychiatrist when they've been trying a lot of things that are not working. And looking for new ideas and then coming to me oftentimes where I raise the question and start to delve a little deeper. So I would say at least 30% of my patients that have come to me older than 10 years old that haven't had a diagnosis yet that we start that process. Yeah. How often do you feel like the parents are also thinking about autism simultaneously when they're coming to you? It's a really interesting question because I have some parents that they've actually thought about it and been told no, that they don't have this diagnosis. Even when no testing or anything has been done, just told, no, I don't see that. And so they gave up on it, but it was in the back of their mind. I say that's more common than parents coming in that it's totally new thought and they've never thought about it before and never heard anything about it. Yeah. And so when you're making a diagnosis, just briefly, what does your process look like to make that diagnosis? Yeah. So it's a really, it's a really good question. And I usually tell parents that there's a couple different ways that we could do this and that it really depends on their goals of care. And this is also where we talk about the great interface of both of our specialties, that there are many different ways of different people that can diagnose autism and different techniques. So me as a psychiatrist, I really go by clinical criteria. And so that usually involves you know, getting to know the kid over a couple visits, their parents, getting information from teachers, other people in their life, and really doing a deep dive into the criteria. And there are some other kind of assessment scales sometimes that I'll pull in, but it's really clinical interview. Oftentimes, if it's a clear cut case, sometimes that's enough for us. If we're still not sure if we're like, could this also be something else on top? Then I may also refer for psychological testing. We have a psychologist in my office that does that. That's a whole gamut of other tests. And so sometimes it's me reviewing prior tests with a clinical interview. And then sometimes I refer them out. And a lot of what it also depends on is what are you looking for with this diagnosis? Because some people just truly want to know to inform their life, make decisions. And some people are looking for services, whether that's for school, whether that's for state therapy services. And depending where you live, sometimes that will require a formalized psychological testing, um, which we could talk about. So I always get a sense from parents what we're looking for with a diagnosis, how we're hoping it can help us. And then sometimes I will make the diagnosis myself or I will refer out for it. That makes sense. Yeah. I will say, having been in this field, but I'd love your perspective on it. I do think you're more of a rarity of psychiatrists who diagnose autism. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. If you- yes, no, I, I, I absolutely. It's funny because even when I trained, there was one other psychiatrist that I trained under who was also an autism specialist and that was his thing. So we have I don't know, hundreds of hours of doing this, but for most, you'll also hear people say that either other psychiatrists, so you can't diagnose it. You need an ADOS so you need a psychological instrument. So it's really a clinical diagnosis. So those are helpful tools, but I I would say it's true. Most psychiatrists do not feel comfortable making that diagnosis, especially when it's not obvious. We have an idea of what autism looks like. And when that doesn't fit kind of the stereotype you're taught in medical school, most of the time shy away from it. Yeah. Yeah. And I totally agree. There's absolutely cases that behavioral observations and clinical interview, you're like, it's autism, that additional isn't needed. And I also think that 
whatever I think, I believe the path of least resistance for families to get the service. hundred percent. Like we don't need to make them continue to jump through all these hoops. We yes. have an episode on this. It's interesting though. I find a lot of times pediatricians will refer to developmental behavioral pediatricians, which are uh-huh. amazing field too. But then it's sometimes when those cases aren't clear cut, then they're waiting on a list for a psychologist as well. And parents aren't being told that they can go straight to psychologists as well. And so many different providers, different approaches. But I think what resonates with what you're sharing for me is like your time and intention and not only the lived experience as a sibling as well, coming into this to be able to serve this community. I wish there were more of you. Like, how can we like duplicate you? <laughs> throughout each state. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. And that's part of my mission. I even just got a message today from a young person training in psychiatry who has a brother on the spectrum and was asking me more questions about what I do. And I got really excited because maybe there there could be another one that we're rare, but when we come along, we all have to band together and this experience. And many of my supervisors that focus on autism, they often have a sibling or a family member or a parent. It's a close to heart kind of thing that that we do. Yeah, because I think in the field of psychiatry, it's like really niching down to focus on autism. I yeah. mean, a lot, of, again, a lot of intentionality to get to the point of where you're at when having your private practice and focusing mm-hmm. on autism. It's not like this is, at least my understanding, this isn't part of your standard training. No, there's pretty little training in autism in general and adult training for psychiatry in the child. Child specialty, there's a little more just because autism tends to be more focused and more awareness than kids, but it's still pretty small and still does require a lot of intentionality to really make it a clinical focus. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so cool. Okay. So diagnosis, part of your practice that comes about, obviously we're going to get into med management. So we know that's a huge piece. How much are you doing therapy as part of your practice? The way I'm, what I love about running your own practice is you can set it up however you want. But all of my visits, I do brief integrated therapy. I have some patients that are pretty stable and they have their own therapist and they're like, I really just need my prescription and that's okay. And that might be a 15 minute visit, but I always have at least 30 minutes. And usually it's maybe five minutes about medicines and then the rest is we're talking. So It's the mix, which what I really like is the model is an integrated therapy approaches within a med management visit. And I try to do that for every patient that wants it because I think it's, I think it's so necessary. And I think it just helps the medications work better, helps me understand things. And it's really about the person. So that's my style. I'm also very into psychotherapy training and doing my own, done my own supervision in it. So it's very important. And it's very important to me too, because a lot of my patients don't have therapists or can't find therapists or neurodiversity affirming therapists. So I'm what they got. So that's what we do. Totally. You can send them my way because I can practice in Arizona. We can collect. I didn't know that. Amazing. Oh my gosh. Yes. We'll have to talk more about that because that's a big deal. (laughs) It's a big deal. So my question actually for you, I love that. My question for you is we've already talked about you're pretty rare. And so it's going to be hard for parents to find someone like you, although if they're in Arizona, we will link your information. So, they awesome. can, But what would you recommend as parents are navigating this journey and trying to find a psychiatrist? Like what are some things to look for or conversations to have that can help set them up for success? Yeah, I think openness is the biggest thing. So I think you will find psychiatrists that I've even worked with some that have called me with questions or that say, hey, I'm not sure, but I am i haven't had a lot of patients with autism, but I'd really like to get to know your son and learn and tell me about him and what works for him and what you've tried. And that's very different from someone that, oh, I've seen two cases of autism. Yeah, I can do this, but really not. So I think that openness, inquisitiveness attitude, which usually you can tell in the first couple of visits, I think is a big deal because a lot of us, even myself, we're always continuing to learn. So though the person may not be an expert, are they able to be open to ideas? Are they able to collaborate with people? If you want to get a second opinion, is that okay? I think that's a big thing. I think someone that is also available for issues in between visits. So sometimes you make a change or a medication change and you'll see someone in a month in between things don't go well and knowing their policy, what's your support policy in between if we need help. Um, and having that really clear at the beginning, you know what to do. And if there's a crisis, you have support and are not left, you know, in the wind or, oh, we'll see you in three months. 
doesn't really work for complex cases like autism, mental health. I think that's a big thing. I think having, and I love our medical assistant that we have at our office, but even having not just psychiatrists, but the whole staff being autism and neurodiversity informed. So from that first phone call that they make their visit from anybody else that they interact with, I think there's a culture that each practice has and each doctor has, and you see it in the way that the other staff members behave and interact with you. So I would pay attention to that a lot as well. Yeah. Those are some great tips. And I talk a lot too on the podcast is like, you want to be able to collaborate with your child's provider, whether that's a pediatrician or a psychiatrist or whoever and feel heard and feel like your input is valued. That's a big one too. But I, I love some of these ideas and specifically asking in between those appointments, you're so right of, especially if they're not already working with Sometimes as a psychologist, people will ask me questions and I can be like, yes, you need to go back to your prescribing provider for that. that uh -huh. But I feel like if you're not working with another provider, it can yeah. be hard to know and to navigate all of this. Yeah, absolutely. And to know what to do. Is this a crisis? Is it not? And just having some skills, some resources, and even just the comfort of somebody's on the other side of that phone is a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. So I think that parents often have this question of like, when do they know they, they should go to psychiatry or when do you usually recommend it? Because some pediatricians, especially in terms of like stimulant medications or like SSRIs, I'll see pediatricians making those, like writing those prescriptions and managing the medication. When do you often recommend, okay, it's time for psychiatry? Yeah. So that's a great question. And I think it it's so variable from the parents I hear in terms of how comfortable their pediatrician is with mental health medications. But I would say similar to if you have a, even like it just if you have a question, if there's an autism diagnosis, the earlier you check it out, the better. Going to see a psychiatrist doesn't mean we're going to walk out with a prescription today. So I think even just getting that consultation, even getting to know somebody and just having a framework in mind can be really helpful. So if the question is, eh, should we see a psychiatrist? no harm in getting a consultation. You're not committing to psychiatric care at that time. If you just want to check what the pediatrician is doing, get another opinion. I think that's one thing. The other thing that I've noticed a lot of times with pediatricians, um, some of them absolutely great, but just one of the most common reasons sometimes why our medications don't work is they're not dosed appropriately or at the higher dose. And sometimes pediatricians will start it and then kind of like, oh, we're getting to the dose where I'm comfortable at, but the person's not doing better yet. And really they just come to me and we just fix the dose and they're good. So sometimes pediatricians are getting the ball rolling. And then I come in almost like a second play to take it further when those lower doses or those first line medicines didn't work. Particularly for autism mental health, the most common cases that I get referred from pediatricians are things like severe depression with suicidal thoughts. That's not responding. Severe anxiety, panic attacks. I treat a lot of self-harm, self-injury behavior. But that's something that usually isn't part of standard pediatrics repertoire. And I would say also if parents are concerned, if there's another mental health condition occurring, anxiety, ADHD, but also like PTSD or bipolar disorder, people with autism are at higher risk for all different kinds of mental health conditions. So even for a diagnosis, just to get a framework, I think it always be helpful. Now I say that knowing it's so hard to get into a child psychiatrist. So yeah, yeah. it would be great if everybody could just show up just like it'd be great if everybody could have a therapist, but it's really hard. So I get that. So if we're being judicious with it, I would say when there's a, when there's a lack of response, when we're running out of new ideas and when there's a diagnosis question, is this maybe something else? It can always be helpful. And I have some patients that prefer seeing their pediatrician. So they see me for a consultation, I would tidy things up and then they go back and then I'm available on an as needed basis. So that's an option for parents too. That, yeah. And I think that's so important to remember one thing that you said, and I will say this all the time to families is like having that initial consultation doesn't mean you're walking out with a prescription. Like it's a time to ask questions, but I also talk about, there's still another decision point of they might walk out with a prescription, but are they going to take the medication as well? Uh -huh. And so there's so many decision points. And I think sometimes we just think of psychiatry as that means my kid's going on meds. And that just simply isn't true because there's many no. decision points along the way. Absolutely. Absolutely. I totally agree with that.
Yeah. And I think that one of the things too, that I see is like all those things you're describing. So I often talk about if a pediatrician from a triage approach is able to manage it great. And if they feel comfortable and all of that, especially when there's someone like a therapist on board who also knows autism in that differential diagnosis piece. But I think so often I start to see it quickly get to the point where it's no, or sometimes too, it's like it, and I'd be interested to dive into this, but sometimes with autism, you'll see the ADHD symptoms, but maybe it's not quite rising to a level above and beyond autism. And then pediatricians are being like, nope, we won't prescribe without that ADHD diagnosis. Uh Oh yeah. And I have some cases that sometimes just clinical experience, so they're too young for medications. So there's also an age that pediatricians are comfortable prescribing versus child psychiatrists. And I do have some very young patients, three years old, four years old, that really do need medication management. And some of them have come from me from pediatricians that aren't just comfortable treating until they're six or seven or eight years old. Yeah, that's so true. I hear that one actually quite a lot. Uh Yeah. Okay, so let's start to talk about And I'm trying to think of the best way, like my brain is spinning because I have so many questions about the medication (laughs) piece. I'm wondering if we start though, talking about maybe some like common, like referral questions of like thing. I know you, you mentioned some of the depression and anxiety, and then I don't know if we can group it by what you typically see or some common things. And then usually what sort of medications you're looking at as an option. It's okay. I don't know, is that too complicated? I think let me make sure there that I got it. common questions around certain diagnosis and associated medications. Yeah, yeah, I think. Okay, the most common co-occurring thing that I treat is anxiety and depression. Like okay. every day, all day with autism. It's so common. Are you usually seeing that start to come on and most commonly? So I have starting at four for some patients. And to come to a child psychiatrist, even to consider medications at that age, the anxiety is pretty paralyzing. That's you true. Know, yeah. We're talking people that have, these are patients that really even have a hard time participating in therapy because the anxiety is so bad. And so they're really not able to get benefit. And that's when they come to me. Depression, usually I see emerge more in elementary school as the younger ages that I see. And it can look a lot like neurotypical kids, the same symptoms we used to diagnose that. But you can also see more autism related distress sometimes that I can see increased stimming, trying to self-soothe. I see some regression sometimes, sometimes more self-injury, self-harm stuff that comes up as well. Sometimes more of a kind of withdrawal into the preferred routines and interests because that's safe and everything else is too anxiety provoking or makes them too sad. So I look for those things as well. Uh, And I think that's one of the biggest questions that I get asked, is this just autism or could it be like, could my kid be depressed? Could they have anxiety? Could they have obsessive compulsive disorder? And my answer is always like, Yes, they could. Let's ask further and let's take a deep dive and see and go through our process. Another common question I get asked is, are there any medicines like for autism specific anxiety or autism specific depression? Is it different than medication wise and regular depression or regular anxiety, so to speak? And the answer to that for most of the time is no. Uh, We can't talk about some FDA medications, but for most of the time we're using our general psychopharmacology toolbox. We're just using it creatively and being aware of sometimes a different risk benefit or side effect profile, but we're still using the same medications and they can still work very well when done correctly. I've seen a lot of life-changing, happy results with them, which is why I continue to like doing what I do. Yeah. What kind of, for anxiety and depression for you, and maybe they're different, what type of class of medication are you usually going to? Are you going to more like SSRIs? Are you going to more like benzos? Like- Uh Great question. My starters are usually two classes, either SSRIs most commonly, with the caveat that if somebody has a bipolar, if I think it's a bipolar anxiety with autism or a bipolar depression with autism, I may start a little different. But for most of the time, SSRIs, or sometimes as a psychiatrist, you think how many co-occurring issues can I hit with one medication? Mm. So sometimes for anxiety and ADHD, I might actually try different medications that like ADHD medicines that have an anti-anxiety effect and actually start there. So it can depend. I usually do not do benzodiazepines like an everyday thing, but I do have some patients with autism, let's say who have really bad, we call agoraphobia for certain things like 
getting to a therapy appointment, they panic, they have a meltdown, they can't make it out the door. And so judiciously, sometimes until they get used to it one or two times a week, that's our rescue medicine to be able to bring the anxiety down from like a 10 to a six to get out the door and do your therapy. And then we work on our skills and then pull it back. But usually that's not one of my main go-tos, mainly SSRIs, mainly alpha-2 agonists that are another, those are those ADHD medicines with some anti-anxiety effects that I'll use. Then sometimes when those don't work, you have to get creative too. Okay. Yeah. So let's cut through what, just so parents understand, cause they might not know classes of medication, yeah. naming some like common, like medications you go to within the SSN, SSRI umbrella. And yeah. Yeah. Because I see mostly kids and teens, the most common SSRIs we use in that group are Lexapro and Zoloft. I really like those. I'll use Prozac sometimes too, depending on the case. There's another medication called Buspirone that I like, which is just for anxiety, not as much for depression, but can work really well in kids who have side effects from SSRIs. And then many kids with autism, because they get sometimes in that fight or flight state with sensory overload as well. And with ADHD, sometimes we'll use medications called alpha-2 agonists. Those are just things like clonidine, guanfacine, catapress and tuniv, those kind of things. And sometimes we'll even combine them together because you're working on different brain pathways of anxiety and sometimes can have a synergistic effect if you combine them at the right doses and at the right timing during the day. Okay. And then SNRIs are a different class as well, or yes. In- Name some of those and are those ever things that you go to? Real quick, just a brief interruption because I want you to know you don't have to navigate this journey alone. If you're in a place where you have concerns about your child's development, you've been on the search for a therapist that provides evidence-informed neurodivergent affirming care, or you're needing more support as a parent, the whole family approach may be a good fit for you. Autism doesn't just impact your child's life, so you deserve care that works for your child and your whole family. Head to the link in the show notes to schedule a complimentary call where we can chat about your unique circumstances. We can help you decide if Dr. Tay concierge clinical care would be a good fit for your family. And if not, we will provide you resources for your next best steps. Yeah. So for anxiety and depression, the more common ones that we'll use are Cymbalta and Effexor. I absolutely will go to those. Cymbalta is actually FDA approved in kids for anxiety. It can have a little bit more side effects in terms of tummy aches, headaches, that kind of thing. So it's usually not my first go-to, but if the SSRIs or the other things I'm doing don't work, or if someone in the family, because a lot of times also mom or dad, brother, sister has anxiety or depression, if they've done well with it, I will definitely consider it depending on the kid's age and other co-occurring symptoms. That makes sense. Yeah. Now for, and we haven't fully gone here with ADHD yet, But SNRIs, I have heard those sometimes prescribed for ADHD when families aren't going the stimulant route. Is that something? So there's one that's pretty much, there's two, but there's one and then there's a new one that's been tweaked a little bit. So you have your SNRIs that are for depression and anxiety, and those have a little different chemical formulation than the SNRIs that we use for ADHD. So the ones that you'll hear about when they're saying we're not doing a stimulant route, those are medications like Stratera or Calbri. Those are really more norepinephrine and less serotonin. So we use those more for the ADHD piece, whereas things like Cymbalta or Effexor, the SNRIs for anxiety and depression, they're a little bit different and those are more mood, less ADHD. But if you look them up, they will all say they're SNRIs and it can be confusing to know which is being used for which. Yeah. This is even helpful for me. (laughs) Okay. ADHD. What are some of the paths you usually go in terms of medication there? So if the patient, it depends to me if somebody's coming in new, we've never tried any medicines or we've tried a lot of things and things aren't working. So the decision tree there affects things. And also the age that the patient is affects things and how severe their ADHD is. And The best working medications for ADHD in terms of efficacy are the stimulants. They're one of our best medications in psychiatry. They work for 80 to 90% of people. When they work, it's fantastic. When they don't work, it can be really a struggle. But when they work, they're amazing. If we haven't tried one, let's give it a try at least. I usually start at a little bit lower doses because individuals, autistic individuals can have sometimes some more side effects from stimulants, like increased anxiety, headaches, tummy aches, that kind of thing. 
So I go a little more gently getting it started, but I don't want to rob them of that opportunity to potentially have a medication that we know works the best of all of our psychiatry medicines. I try to do a stimulant and kids, usually I start with the methylphenidate kind. So you may have heard of Ritalin or Concerta. Those kinds of medicines are stimulants, but they're a little bit gentler than medications like Adderall or Vyvanse that you'll hear about, which are amphetamine-based, which work great, are a little more potent. So I'll usually start with the methylphenidate-based stimulant, see if that works. A lot of kids, about 50%, if one doesn't work for them, the other does. I try to give it two tries. At the same time, I also have many families that come in and you hear a lot about stimulants and patients have their reasons for not wanting to use them and say, we don't want to go that route. What else you got? And we got a lot that we can try as well. So alpha-2 agonists, um, alpha-2 is a receptor in the brain that controls norepinephrine and dopamine, which kind of help us focus and organize our frontal lobes for ADHD. So we can stimulate those. Um, and then we can also get sometimes some anti-anxiety, anti-aggression effects with those. So those are medicines like the clonidine and guanfacine that I mentioned that we'll try. And the newer ones that you mentioned, the SNRIs like Stratera or Calbri, those can be options that can be really nice for anxiety, ADHD, also bedwetting. So we look at co-occurring symptoms. I would say in my experience, stimulants, most effective. Then it's the alpha-2 agonists like clonidine, guanfacine. And then a little lower for me is the Stratera and the Calbri, just because I don't see them work for as many people. When they work, it's awesome. Yeah, It's just, I have a lower number of responders to those in my practice. And then I'm always asking patients, a lot of our patients that are autistic also have picky eating, right? So that can affect our brain function and our focus. So I'm asking what's going on there. Do we need any supplements? So sometimes I'll combine some of these medications with supplements. And there's one antidepressant called Wellbutrin that also has some ADHD effects. So sometimes we'll throw that on there. We get pretty creative sometimes, but it has to be extremely personalized for them. Absolutely. Okay. My brain is going in a million directions right now (laughs) um, of where I want to take this. So one of my questions for you is we've talked about this idea of co-occurring like mental health disorders. How often I don't know how to articulate this, but if you're prescribing a medication for it, is it that you believe that it's rising above and beyond autism? Because sometimes like autism can be so heterogeneous and like sometimes you'll see kids have hyperactive behavior or inattention, but it's better explained by autism than necessarily a co-occurring ADHD diagnosis. How do you- right usually navigate that right. most of the time when I'm doing it it's because I think there's a co-occurring disorder going on when I'm prescribing however sometimes I will off-label prescribe when I still think it's part of autism but the symptoms are so severe that we're impairing quality of life and I prescribe with the caveat that I don't think this is a co-occurring disorder therefore we may not get the same robust response if it's not truly ADHD But let's see if we can get some executive functioning or attention benefit, because some of these medicines work um, off-label. For example, people that are depressed and can't focus. Sometimes a stimulant will help them, even though they don't have ADHD. So it's worth a try, though most of the time I'll say when I do it, it is because I think it's reached a clinical threshold for a co-occurring diagnosis. That makes sense. Yeah. And do you ever see, so I have a friend who owns a practice in LA and they have psychiatry under the umbrella of the psychology practice and they specialize in autism as well. And that psychiatrist in just casual conversation was talking about a lot of times she will prescribe stimulant medications with autism because that she'll see that response in terms of helping with attention, executive function, like you're saying, but also emotion dysregulation. Do you? Yeah, I do see that. Probably a lot of those kids I would diagnose with ADHD too, because I think it's not in the DSM criteria yet, but I think the emotion dysregulation is such a big piece of ADHD. And we see it autism too, but I think- Yeah, in both, really. Yeah, it's It's really- I think there's a common brain network pathway there that we just see and that stimulants can help regulate. For me, if it's not co-occurring ADHD, if it's just autism, more emotion dysregulation, I may try some other things first before I try a stimulant, like the alpha-2 agonist is more my style. But certainly, yeah, you see psychiatrists get creative because other than two medications, they don't have anything FDA approved for autism specific, insert symptom domain here. We don't have that. Most things are based on co-occurring disorders. 
Correct. And so we have to get creative. (laughs) That makes sense. That makes sense. So let's talk about the two medications that are FDA approved, what they are, what class they are, and when you usually use them if you do. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting because I think they're the only two, I could be wrong on this, but in my training, they're the only two medicines that are approved for a symptom like autism related irritability on agitation, as opposed to a diagnosis like autism related depression. Mm. So it's unique that the FDA did that more for the symptom domain because it's this murky thing that can be caused by many different parts and couldn't figure out why, but you know, that it works. So the medication class, um, I like to start with saying they're serotonin and dopamine modulators. <laughs> and the reason that I say that is because they are. And we're moving more towards in medicine, um, more of a mechanism-based naming as opposed to a diagnosis-based. And the reason is because if you Google these medicines, you'll see they're listed as atypical antipsychotics, which they are. However, we use them for a breadth of other things in psychiatry, depression, anxiety, mood stabilization. Parents, a lot of times, see that word antipsychotic and get really scared. And that's not to say the medicines don't have side effects. But also to say their kid isn't necessarily psychotic because we're prescribing this medication. There are other reasons. And we know that modulating those brain pathways can be helpful for a variety of mental health conditions. I prescribe them for a couple different reasons. I do prescribe them sometimes in patients that have co-occurring autism and a bipolar disorder, autism and depression, because sometimes those meds can actually be really helpful for depression when other antidepressants haven't worked autism and psychosis, psychotic disorders, but also particularly sometimes in our younger kids and teenagers when the mood dysregulation gets to a threshold where it's really hard to control with other medications and therapies. I call them sometimes for lack of a better word with parents, I fire extinguishers, like they really do work for agitation and irritability. There are two that are FDA approved, which is aripiprazole or Abilify. At the same time, we have dozens of atypical antipsychotics, and those are not the only two that I will use. Those are the only two that have the FDA approval. And so what, there can does, be- what does that mean? Just real quick, like in a short nutshell. Yeah, it means the, the drug company went through the different phases of phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trials to get that stamp of approval. And many of these other medicines, they're generics. And they don't really have a financial incentive to market and get that stamp of approval on them. Just like many antidepressants can also be really helpful for anxiety. They don't all have the FDA approved for anxiety because drug companies like, we're get, we have enough of them out already for this indication. It's not worth it for them to go back and do another trial, but we know the mechanisms, how they work are very similar. So we'll often still use them. We can extrapolate that data. So a lot of times I go beyond the FDA, especially in autism, because studying autistic patients is not easy and it's not common and they've been left out of a lot of research. So we have to do our best to extrapolate results. But I will use them both actually two times, sometimes on an everyday basis, really to help control mood, agitation, self-harm. But also sometimes things can be okay until they're not and we need like a rescue medicine. And so there are certain ones even that come as like dissolvables that somebody can take when they're really worked up and their regular coping skills to calm down aren't working. And when we're at a threat of hurting ourselves or hurting somebody else, that's when it could be a great time to parents to have that like arsenal in their toolbox. And it's something I do very carefully because the medicines can have side effects too, just any medicine can. But for a lot of patients, especially kids and teens, as they're developing and their emotion regulation systems are developing and we're having more severe meltdowns that could result in harm to self or harm to others, that can be a really appropriate time to use one of those medications. Yeah. I often, and please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah. I often think of these medications as like heavy hitters. So that I don't usually see it being like the first line of treatment. Is that your experience for the most part? Like are usually other things going to be tried first before going to these or? It's a good question. It depends on how intense somebody's symptoms are. So, and also the setting. So if I'm in a hospital and somebody's coming to me versus somebody's casually coming to a clinic and things are okay, but not great. Can we try some other things? And it also depends. Sometimes things have been, unfortunately, at a boiling point without treatment for so long that by the time everybody's ready to burst and like, we're not at a hospital, but like we could be going to the hospital next week if we don't do something. 
Right. And so then that's where that medicine jumps the line. And we go there first and stabilize things. And then I flip it and then try to pull back and do something later once we've rescued or stabilized things. Yeah. But normally I do try to do other things first if we're stable and if we can try some other things that take four to six weeks to work instead of one to two. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I will say, I've seen those kids that I know exactly what you're talking about. And it's, we need, they need support now and they need something that's going to help them to be able to regulate that. Okay. So some other questions that are popping in, um, on the podcast, we actually don't have an episode, but there's a plan to talk about PDA pathological demand avoidance, also known as persistent driver autonomy, which we know is not in the DSM. Is this something that you've come across in your clinical practice? Are families bringing this to you at all? Because I know for me, I'm getting a lot of referrals right now with that being sent. Yes. Yes. So you're totally right. It's not in the DSM. And I get a lot of referrals and questions asking about that. And I think it's really interesting because I think it's just like a lot of things that are in the DSM right away, there probably there is some clinical entity that these symptoms are showing. And so whether or not we have a DSM term for it, I think just like a lot of things in psychiatry, the label is really there to like help help us conceptualize and like how to help people and what works for them and what doesn't. And so I think that's much more helpful than sometimes diagnosing these kids as oppositional defiant disorder when that's not really fitting what we're seeing. So I I usually don't diagnose it primary because it's usually not my primary conceptualization of the issues that people are coming to me for. But I have people that have seen other providers, particularly speech therapists, seem like a common one that I've seen diagnosing it. Shocking to me. Okay. Yeah. That seems to be the most common, the most couple of times when I've had families come in I'd say, oh, we have this issue. It's usually been speech therapy that's noticed. So I will take it into kind of my consideration there. It usually doesn't affect my medication choices too much because I'm usually going after other things, but it can guide me in how to, again, interact and respect that uh, autonomy and the way that we're going to do things in the room, which honestly is probably neurodiversity affirming and how I might do things anyways, but it helps to keep in mind. Absolutely. So when that comes up, and I know every case is different, but as a whole, are you usually, I often think of it as related to anxiety. It's that fight or flight system that's activating. Are you usually coming at it from an anxiety standpoint or? So it depends. Yeah. How it's showing up because some people's, I I agree it's a hundred percent fight or flight anxiety and some people's anxiety are screaming tears some people it's withdrawal. Some it's like really agitated, like breaking things that fight or flight, right. Turns more into fight than flight. So depending on what anxiety symptoms we're seeing shows me what pharmacologically I will use. And so I will still understand that it's anxiety, but the way the anxiety is manifesting helps me choose which medication class I'm going to pick. Or for example, I have some kids that anxiety manifesting in self-harm statements like I'm going to hurt myself. I'm going to kill myself. Make me do this. I would not use an SSRI for those. For example, I would maybe try something else. Whereas other times I will use an SSRI. So really depends. Yeah. And it's a lot of clinical experience. There's no book that, that has this written in it. I was going to say, so me doing a deep dive on PDA, because I will diagnose it as part of the conceptualization of autism and whatever, whatever else is going on. But I often see, I shouldn't say often, but there's, it's a noticeable effect of parents saying my medication, like they have a PDA child medication didn't work. It made things worse, but, and I've been curious about that, but as I'm listening to you, my brain is going, oh, they're probably not targeting like the right symptoms and the right approaches. And it's not like PDA, we need to prescribe this. It's really doing this deep dive to understand how everything is presenting. Yes, how it shows up in that particular person and going after that symptom cluster that they, each person creates and shows up for you. Yeah, oh, I love that. And I think that's a, an important conceptualization of psychiatry in general. And like I said, I'm learning so much from you uh, in our conversation, but it is like you're doing this deep dive to really understand what's driving things. And that I know I asked earlier, what can parents look for in working with a psychiatrist? But I also think getting a little curious of understanding their conceptualization could be- Oh, a hundred percent. Even asking those questions and 
giving their feedback as to what they think might be driving this and how they see the behaviors coming out because they're at home with the person. And they see also maybe in sometimes in some settings, it looks like this, but other settings, it looks like this, that the more kind of colors we can add to the picture, the better we can do, which is often very hard in a 15 minute med visit. So when you have those coming prepared, writing it down, even sending it to the doctor ahead of time, really make your time efficient. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. 15 minutes flies. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Two other things that I wanted to touch on before I think we've covered a breath, but one of the things that I'm wondering about is sleep, because that is something that is very frequently coming up, at least in my clinical practice is like sleep difficulties. Is that something you're often seeing and how do you usually approach that? Oh yeah, I see it. I see it all the time. I think there, there is evidence that it's inherent to autism and neurodiversity brain wiring in terms of sleep center in the brain, melatonin secretion, all of that. And also when people come to me, they have co-occurring all these mental health conditions and almost all of them have some kind of sleep dysregulation or circadian rhythm dysregulation component. And then in addition, we often have sensory issues and we often have medical issues that are affecting our sleep as well. So usually it's a big pile of different things that are affecting our sleep. Um, And most of the time when parents come to me, they've tried melatonin, usually, not always. That's one that we'll often start with. But they've tried melatonin, a lot of other homeopathic regimens. They have tried getting a better bedtime routine going as well, because that can be something. So usually by the time parents come to me, we're also looking at pharmacologic add-ons. It's interesting. Most of the time, I do sometimes, and most of the time I don't prescribe primary sleep medicines. I usually prescribe co-occurring ADHD, anxiety, depression medicines that have a little bit of a sleep effect as well, but we're targeting something else around it because I really try to simplify and use the least amount of medications possible. Yeah. But I do have some patients that will have to add on sleep medicines like trazodone or hydroxyzine. And I will do that sometimes, but usually if I can build something in either with a sleep inducing or sleep prolonging effect, depending on the kind of issues we're having, but also will help with the co-occurring mental health stuff. That's really where I like to start. Um, a lot of patients need a sleep study and that has not been offered to them. And there are ways now where you can do it in your home. And they can make them a lot more accessible to people on the spectrum that you don't always have to go in and get like the full thing in the sleep lab and sleep away from home. Yeah, that's the best. Yeah, but that can be really hard. So you can actually get a lot of other information from doing that at home. There are sleep scales that I use and we just track it. When I tell parents and kids, there is some degree probably that somebody's sleep just is going to be hard for a long time. Like you're not getting somebody that just goes to the pillow and it's super easy. So we have to work around it. But can we get enough restful sleep where your body's rejuvenating the way it needs to? And also our mental health is doing better because if we're missing our sleep, we're chasing our tail with all these other things. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I also want to highlight this point that you said your goal is to prescribe the least number of medications possible. And I think this is really interesting. So when I was in the research space, emotion dysregulation was like a common area of study within autism for me. And we know from the research that what we call polypharmacy is much higher in autistic individuals than non-autistic individuals. And that means prescribing med after med. I know I'm more explaining this for the listeners, but I think that's such an interesting point. But I also think this is, it comes back to show how much your understanding of autism and not all psychiatry will understand autism and how it manifests and all of that. And so sometimes too, I feel like there's a lot of, oh, there's this symptom. Let's add this. There's this symptom. Let's add this. And so I just, I wanted to highlight that point. I don't know if you have any other additional thoughts. Yeah, I do have thoughts. I do have thoughts on that because I think there's a couple things. There's one bucket of things. We'll see five different medicines all at half the doses they need to be. And it's, what are we doing here? We're not really treating anything. So sometimes it's simplifying. At the same time, so there's, I keep in my head, polypharmacy, where we have medicines that are redundant, that are not needed, that are at too low doses, and that's not helpful. And that's very different than somebody using combination therapy, where we actually have a combination, but each thing is doing its thing, and it's synergistic, and we're at the right doses, and we are, like, simplified. And sometimes it can be as simple as, hey... This actually even comes, it sounds silly, but even the number of tablets sometimes, hey, this actually comes 
in a chewable, or we can actually get a 600 milligram tablet instead of two 300s. But, oh, really? Because sometimes the number of pills that they have to swallow is crazy. But so I think trying to simplify, I always think I'm ahead simplifying. And if we have multiple medications, can I justify why each one is on board and how it's helping the other ones? And if I can't, then I actually work to de-prescribe, which is one of the hardest things to do judiciously. And that can take a lot of time to de-prescribe things that we don't need and that aren't working for us. And it can be really scary, but it's important to do because we don't want medications on board just to have medications. There's no point in that. Yeah. Such a helpful point. And even I just learned, like I, I keep <laughs> saying, it's so fun. Okay. The other question that came to mind is you mentioned about supplements, any kind of like recommendations of like common supplements that are coming up, just parents can ask their prescribers, that type of thing. Yeah, I can say so the more common ones that I use in my practice um, that have been helpful to patients. So we'll actually use um, lavender extract or there's an over-the-counter formulation. It's called Calmade. It's available in Germany and Europe as like a prescription for anxiety and sleep, but here it's over-the-counter. I've had some patients that do really well with that as a nice add-on and just that for their sleep. Other patients, it doesn't make a difference, but it's pretty safe. So we'll add that on. And sometimes there is some evidence and studies of like aromatherapy, lavender being calming. So it mm. comes in a capsule. So some patients will take that um, for sleep at nighttime. So that's a great one. Another one that I'll use sometimes for my ADHD medicine, sometimes they're working really good, but we need a little more focus, but we can't push our dose more because then we'll have like side effects. So I try to boost there with supplements. So I will use things like ginkgo biloba, that has good evidence for helping boost effects of methyl broad spectrum micronutrients. There are different companies that make them super vitamin really for kids that are very picky eaters. And we're not getting in all of our B vitamins in particular that we would need for optimal brain functioning. Sometimes we'll add those on fish oils can be great, particularly if we don't have enough omega threes. I think it's, there's been a little overhyped how much they can do sometimes, but they, they can be helpful, particularly if we're not getting omega threes, those are helpful for the brain. Sometimes we'll do ginseng as an ADHD booster as well. And sometimes parents come into me and they tell me some ideas that they've had and we add that on and it, it works. Most of the time, I always ask parents, if we want to do a supplement, ask me first so we can plan it better. Oh, another one that I really like is N-acetylcysteine or NAC. That can actually be really great for skin picking in autism and like obsessive disorders. Yeah, yeah, uh -huh. you have to go to pretty high doses. The thing I like about most of these, if they don't work, they don't work and that's okay, but we don't really have side effects with those ones when they're dosed appropriately. And melatonin is a common one that I prescribe. The issue with it that parents have to be careful is there's really no FDA regulation. So actually you'll see a lot of bottles and it'll say 10 milligrams of melatonin and it doesn't actually have 10 in it or five. And it's not actually the amount that they say on the outside. Um, and so there are um, a couple brands that go through consumer regulatory testing. Nature Made is one that I like. Um, but I would always have them look it up and check. It's, does it actually have that amount in it? Because sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> and that can be the same thing with other supplements too. So really getting a reputable brand and working it out with your psychiatrist, like you trust this one, could it be good? Uh, making sure that we're not doing anything harmful or that's going to interact with any of our medications or other things that we're doing. Okay. Awesome. And the one that I'm commonly hearing, I feel like from TikTok, which might not be the best source is magnesium. Thoughts on that? Yeah. Magnesium can be great for sleep. Yes. For a lot of my patients, they take magnesium for sleep. There's also, I have a lot of autistic patients that have migraines too. And so they find magnesium really helpful for that as well. Kind of muscle cramping, pretty calming. A lot of kids have constipation and GI issues with autism. So that can be helpful. Like anything, we just have to make sure that we're dosing it appropriately and not overdoing it or else we get a lot of diarrhea. It's usually the side effect that I see when we go too much. But yes, I have families that choose to use magnesium and we add that on. And some families prefer doing magnesium over Miralax or like other stool softeners. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So we have covered so much. And before we wrap up the episode, we're going to let people know how they can keep learning from you. Anything else for you though, that's come to mind in this conversation? Or <laughs> um, Yes, gosh, there's so much to talk about. I know. Um, <laughs> I know. But I just, I just want to throw in then a couple other things, yeah. which are when just in terms of things that I see more commonly sometimes being overlooked or not offered to families, if we're really struggling with managing agitation at home or really irritable moods and we can't get it controlled, 
there are many different kinds of mood stabilizers. And so I'm just going to mention some names that can be really helpful. Yeah. So oxcarbazepine, trileptol, lithium, Depico. I, I use those mood stabilizer medications. Lamictal is a medicine I really like as well that I'll, I will use too. And then it's funny when you mentioned, when I think of my heavy hitters, I have heavy hitters in the back of my head too. And the two for those that are really, these are patients that have had multiple sometimes hospitalizations because behaviors and agitation are so intense. There's a medication called clozapine. The reason that I bring that up is because it's almost never offered to people and it can be a fabulous medication. It's a heavier hitter than risperidone or Abilify. It's like the most intense one, but I have patients that are on that, that that was the difference between staying home and going to a group home of really being able to manage it. It's a very specialty medication to find somebody to prescribe it. But I would say again, in terms of, I, I'm sure there are some parents listening that feel like they have tried everything. And I don't know if they have, but asking somebody if we are there at that point of multiple hospitalizations, chronic suicidal thoughts, aggression, that kind of thing, we really can't get under control. Just asking, hey, is, is my kid a close up being candidate? That can be a fair question to ask. And a lot of times they, they don't get offered that. So just to say that. And the other thing that I will just briefly touch on, which we could do a whole other podcast about this as well, but autism there can also come. Some people can have neurologic things go with it, like a condition called catatonia, and they can get depressed from that. It's complicated, but I just want to throw out things like I threw out clozapine. I want to throw out and dispel any negativity towards ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, that I have some autistic patients that have been so depressed or catatonic or self-injurious, all kinds of stuff. And that's been the life game changer that's nobody's offered. Those are the more intense heavy hitters, but they can be life-changing. And just if parents never hear them about anywhere else, I just want the words to be out there for the most extreme cases that nobody's offered when we're talking like we can't stay at home. So I just wanted to mention those. I know I didn't get into too much detail about them. Yeah. Um, no, I just say. I think it's a really important conversation and I absolutely do talk about co-occurring mental health conditions on the podcast. I have an episode on it, but, and I've seen cases like that, but they're fewer and far between in outpatient therapy. And so uh -huh. I think it's super important too, in this context that this can happen and that there still are solutions that it's not a lost cause, but it is probably finding someone who's much more specialized like you are to be able yeah. to help navigate this. Journey. I think you said it, Greg, that's the best point. I just even bring those up just so people know of the options and that you may not be offered all the options and to keep asking and keep pushing and not losing hope about it. And somebody doesn't know, ask for a specialist referral. Sometimes they're even out of state, but it can be really worth it for those cases where we're there. Maybe we won't be there. Maybe we won't be there for 10 years, but just to know and get educated because it's really important. Yeah. And maybe it is out of state, but that could be the difference of your child having to be hospitalized versus staying at home or significantly reducing self-injury, aggression, the stress in the home, all of that. Sometimes yes. those big moves are needed to have a broader impact on the child and the home setting and all of that. Ariel, this has all been so insightful today. And I know I could keep going down this rabbit hole of asking more questions, but I also know this has been a long enough episode. I feel confident in that parents will get value out of it, but I also know there continues to be questions. There's ways to continue learning. So what are some of the ways that obviously you have your private practice, but what are some of the other ways that you're helping to spread some of this information knowledge out there? Yeah, that's a great question. So I do have my practices, which is really working with one-on-one -on -one clients in Arizona. In addition to that, really with my focus on autism, mental health is where I do a lot of my advocacy. So you can find me on social media at Ariel Rubin MD. Um, and then my project for 2024 that I'm working on is writing a book on autism and mental health to really teach parents about all the things we talked about and more. So I would love to share that with them. If people go to my website, arielrubinmd.com, that's where you can find access to my book list and then also some parenting classes that I'm doing, which is focused on education about medications and autism, medical side of stuff. If people yeah. want to get in on that. So arielrubinmd.com where people can get also make appointments with me, but also learn more about some of the community educational work that I'm doing in that space. And for the community educational, kind of like the courses, do they need to be in Arizona or is no. it 
No, because since we're just doing education, it's what we did here. It's not personal one-on-one, -on -one, but here are your options and answering common questions about stuff. So that can be anywhere. Awesome. I love that so much. We'll link all of that in the show notes. So it's super easy for people to click, go get this information. Wow. Thank you so much. Awesome. Like said, Thank you so much for having me. This was yeah, fun. Multiple times I learned things today and I, I don't know about you, but I love being able to geek out and learn more. Yes. Lifelong learning. That's amazing. Exactly. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. All right, y'all. That is a wrap for today's episode of Evolve with Dr. Tay. I will see you back here next time. Before we wrap up this episode, for real this time, I want to share a couple ways you can get even more value and what your next steps could be. First, join the Evolve Facebook group. We do Q&As about the episodes and so much more. I linked that group, my personal social media pages, and any resources I mentioned in this episode in the show notes. So scroll down now and join me online. When you submit questions on any of my pages, your question could be featured on this podcast. How cool is that? I love being able to speak on topics that feel directly relevant to your life. Your questions truly make a difference in the content we create here. One last thing, do your fellow autism parents a favor. Share this episode on your social media and tag me. Autism currently affects one in 36 families in the United States and many more worldwide. So I'm sure there is a parent in your social media followers that could be served by this podcast. Thank you again for being here, and I'm so grateful we shared this time together. Bye, y'all.